Would you go ahead and share about Nikki? Would you go ahead and share the prayer request? Yellow. I want to share a prayer request uh, Pastor asked me to before I go down. Uh, for our family, I'd uh, like you to pray for uh, my daughter-in-law, Nikki. I have her permission to share this. She has been struggling for the last almost three months with a bad infection in her tonsils. They want to remove those tonsils, and I won't mention her age, but she's at an age where that is more dangerous than when you're one or two years old. And these tonsils are so infected they can't get her well enough to take them out. And this week, dealing with that infection, it hit a point to where Bell's palsy set in, which is when the infection, my understanding is when that infection affects a nerve. Uh, so as you can imagine, that's a very scary thing. And uh, she just asked for her church family to pray for her. So uh, we would covet your prayers as she uh, prays to heal from this. I had uh, my tonsils taken out when I was 28. And the doctor told me then that that's more dangerous than heart surgery. And uh, so whether I understood that right or not, being a veteran of both, um, that's a serious thing. And it's tough when you're an adult and we need to get her well. Okay. So how many of you would say amen that you will pray for her every time the Lord brings her to mind? Amen. amen. And uh, then yesterday, uh, Ben Donahue had his father's memorial service. And so pray for him and his family as they go through the grieving process and deal with those kind of things. And uh, we uh, think about all of the things that are going on in our lives. And on every row, there's something. And then you think about what uh, Brother Sam shared with us earlier. And think about people that we don't ever see. People that we don't ever really think that much about. And think how great the need is for the intervention of God on so many levels in so many areas. And it's almost overwhelming until you realize and think about the fact our God is over all of that. So however big you see the needs today, however big you see the problems, I've got good news for you. That is there so that you can see that your God is bigger than any problem you could ever face. And so we stand in that. So let's pray together. And... Uh, I'm just going to ask you that uh, those of you who are able to stand while we pray. And uh, if you want to gather around somebody and pray for them, you can do that. If you want to come to the altar, you've got some needs in your heart that you want to pray for. Let's just have a fellowship time and bear one of the other's burdens and fulfill the law of God. So go where you need to go, get where you need to be. And uh, I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment. Okay. If we could get a few men to go over here and gather around Brother Sam. He's going to be speaking to us tonight. We appreciate him. Just go over there and support him and pray for him and his ministry. Heavenly Father, 
we are told in the word to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. We want to do that. We're not very good at it, but we want to do it. And the only reason we can do it is because we know the real burden bearer today is Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, who bore our burdens on the cross and even now continues to do what we're doing. He prays for us. How could we do any less for anyone else? And so, Lord, we pray that sick folks would be healed, lost folks would be saved. We pray that backslidden folks would repent and get right. We pray, Father, that burdened-down, discouraged folks would receive the joy of the Lord. And we pray, Father, that as we open up your word today, that where conviction needs to fall, may it fall. And we pray that where affirmation needs to fall, may it fall. We pray that all of us would be comforted by the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that when we leave here, we would leave here better than we came, not because of self-reformation or human effort, but because of the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we pray, Lord, that as you do this, we would always be reminded that we've never walked alone, not one single time. So bless and comfort those who are grieving and lift up those who are discouraged and do all of it today so that we might be better witnesses and better servants of the Lord and more effective in what you've called us to do. And we love you and we love our brothers and sisters and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And if you agree, would you say amen? Amen. amen. God bless you. You may be seated now. Between now and Father's Day, we're going to be taking a break from um, what we've been doing in Exodus. And uh, last week we talked about, since it was Mother's Day and our culture is kind of confused about who mothers are, we talked about some of the transgender things. Today I want to talk about something that, uh, well, by observation of being in the ministry now for decades and a lot of different phases. I've worked with, I've been a church janitor. I have worked with youth. I've worked with college students. I've worked with young married couples and, you know, all the way up. I've been a youth pastor and uh, minister music and all of those kind of things. And uh, I've seen a lot over the years. I've seen a lot. I've experienced a lot. I've talked to a lot of people. And one of the things that I know, times change and technology changes, and there are issues brought up, some of what I talked about last week, that I never dreamed I'd really be preaching on any of those kind of topics. But when you get right down to the nitty-gritty of it, I want you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 12, and we'll read it in just a moment. But let me do some introduction. I have seen that over the years, the number of young people that leave the church and don't come back is steadily going up. And I've always wondered, what in the world is going on? Some of these kids are raised in church families, in good families. And uh, some of them are not. And then sometimes it's kind of confusing because some of the kids that were raised by a good family abandon the faith, and some of the kids that were raised in the worst of circumstances embrace it. And it's uh, one of those things that um, we need to address, we need to think about. And uh, the statistic that 8 out of 10 people, young people that are in the church now, in youth groups and that type of thing, will not be in the church by the time they graduate from college, 
that's true of small churches. That's true of dead churches. That's true of the up-and-coming churches. That's true of the big churches. That's true of the power-packed activity churches. It's just true across the board. Some things not quite right. Some things not working. When I was a youth pastor, this lady came to see me, and she was concerned about her son. He was disrespectful. He wouldn't do what they said. And uh, rebellious and smart-alecky and getting involved in some things that they didn't like. And then she came in and she was saying it was my fault that that was happening. And uh, I was 21, 22 at the time, so I had all kinds of wisdom and experience. And um, she started talking about that, and it kind of made me mad. Kind of made me mad. And then she pinned it down to there was an activity that we had one time with the kids, and we didn't have a devotion, and there it is. That was the problem. As if that one five-minute devotion before we floated the Illinois River would have changed this kid's life. And then I said, well, ma'am, with all due respect, I don't see him that way, and I don't have that problem out of him. And she goes, well, that's because he respects you. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. And uh, we talked about some things, and I happen to know some things, of course, about them. And I said, ma'am, with all due respect, don't expect me to fix in a couple of hours a week what's broken 24-7 at your house. Now, I probably shouldn't have said that. But even today, 40 years later, I stand by it. I stand by it. I probably shouldn't have said it, but I wasn't wrong. I wasn't wrong. And so I see that so many times, Christian parents think that if they just had their kids in Sunday school, church, if they come back on Sunday night and maybe even a Wednesday night, if they have them in Sunday school and Awana and used to have RAs and GAs and some of those things, well, we, we, we did everything. We raised them right and everything. And I've just watched over the years and said there's got to be... Well, Paul Harvey, the, uh, age alert there, uh, used to have a thing called the rest of the story. And what I found out that a lot of times there is something that I would call the rest of the story. And I want to talk today about how to stumble, how to stumble your children. And the reason that I have named it that is because of what the Bible tells us that we are not to do. We're not to stumble our children. Now let's make some observations first because we want to be fair. This is not designed to condemn anybody. This is not designed to stir up guilt. This is not pointing the finger or anything like that. And uh, this first point ought to set everybody's mind at ease. The first thing in introduction we say is you can do everything perfectly and children will rebel. How do I know that? Because God is a perfect father and his children rebel. Can I get an amen? amen? Right? If we say we have no sin, we are a liar, and his truth is not in us. John wrote that to Christians. And so dispel the notion, if your children are wayward and you go, oh, where did I go wrong? Well, maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you did <clears throat> as much as it's humanly possible, and you don't need to take on that guilt. 
That certainly is a possibility, and I don't want this to be a guilt sermon or anything like that. I do want you to listen to it, and especially if you have children still in your home, you really ought to listen to this. And if you were looking to see how can I correct some things, this will give you some ideas. But get that first thing uh, in your head and in your mind. Just because you see somebody and their child rebels, don't automatically judge them like the disciples judged the blind man in our Sunday school lesson and say, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? Well, maybe not, maybe not. The other thing, too, is to remember that regardless, we are commanded not to stumble them, not to stumble them. And the hope, of course, is that like the prodigal, they will return. I've got some of your children I pray for regularly, and I'm expecting that uh, the time will come before I go to be with the Lord, that I will hear from you or from them that they have uh, returned and that the Lord has brought them back in relationship with you and in relationship with the Lord. And if they're not saved, to save them. And uh, we'll let the Lord deal with all of that. But in the meantime, there are some things that we can work on. And these are things that are to accompany the lives of saved people. So if you're a saved person this morning, uh, what Paul is writing here in Romans chapter 12, after he has given the doctrinal section of the book, doctrine always flips over into the practical. Doctrinal and practical. You behave what you believe. And so Paul says, I want to get your belief right so that then that will bleed over in your thinking and your behavior and your attitudes and your actions will be right. Because the gospel restores fellowship and that's ultimately what we want people to be right with God and right with one another in fact uh, relationships give the gospel credibility in our life and in our love for others and the way that we treat them and I thought of these verses we're still going to get to Romans so just hang on Acts 2:47 says about the early church praising God and here you go having favor with all the people there's nothing wrong with getting along with other people. Now, that's not our ultimate goal. We want to please God rather than men. But in the meantime, we ought to be friends, neighbors, having favor with the people as the early church did. In 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So uh, that, that, look, the two together, knowing God, loving people, knowing God, loving people. Okay? Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Shema, taken from Deuteronomy, every Jew knows this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and, it's connected, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, not just superficially, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. How how are you doing on that checklist? The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So they're hooked together. Even the Ten Commandments, the first half deals with our relationship with God, the last half deals with our relationship with people and society, that type of thing. They always go together. And in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the identifying mark. 
And that's why church fights, church splits. That's why divorce in the church. That's why all of the things that, we, that even go on in the home and in neighborhoods and all of that. That's, that's why all of that is so confusing to the world. But I would suggest to you today that ground zero of the devil's attack on all of this is your family. It is the home. And when it's sabotaged there, it's very difficult to make it credible in the church. But when it's good there, then we've got a shot. And we can have an impact on uh, our family and on your family. And we'll help you. Uh, all of us will. We love you and we care about you. And so that brings us then, and I'm going to make a point and then read because it's a lengthy passage. And one of the first stumbling blocks that I see is what I call fake love. Fake love. It's when we pretend. It's when our love is just words. You know? The Bible warns us that we are not to love in word or deed, right? And uh, sometimes we are just simply a bunch of words or a bunch of actions. We're like uh, somebody said one time, we're all hat and no cattle, right? And uh, there's not much backing us up. And I want you to think about what it says in chapter 12 of the book of Romans. And we'll begin in verse 9. And the very first phrase is where I get this. Let love be without hypocrisy. It's easy to say you love, but you've got to really do it. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be from the Lord. Because if kids hear about being loved, and they hear other people talk about love but they don't really feel like they're getting it from their mom and dad. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But when they don't feel like it, then uh, they do like the old song says, they look for love in all the wrong places. Yeah, that's so true. Let love be without hypocrisy. How does that look? How does good biblical love look? Well, he goes on to say, abhor what is evil. You don't love somebody if you're bringing evil and impurity into your home or engaging in it love them enough to live right cling to what is good it's not enough just to take things out of your life you got to put the right things in it be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another now so many times we find people that wonder what's going wrong in their home. We go to church all the time, and yet they're clinging to evil things and excusing them and violating and searing their own conscience and grieving the Spirit of God. And then they wonder what's happening with their kids. And always remember this, what you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. They will take your moderate evil as being normal, the right way to live, and they're going to rebel against that and push it most likely. And so our goal is to be as biblical as possible, as close to where Christ wants us to be as we can. And so we've got to abhor what is evil, and we've got to cling to what is good. Think about that phrase, being kindly affectionate. How many times do I see brothers and sisters being rude to each other and parents just allow it? How many times do we see kids that talk to their parents like you wouldn't talk to a dog, and yet it's allowed, and it's never confronted, and it goes on. And also... How many times do I see parents that they may be doing the right thing and confronting the right thing, but they are rude, they're embarrassing and humiliating their children, and sometimes they're just flat mean while they do it. And you think about where you would be if God treated you like you treat your children, you'd be dead. 
And this is where the Bible talks about our love has got to be real and uh, not fake. It says that we're to give preference to one another in honor. You know, sometimes in families, we give up and we give in. And we, you know, if you've got multiple children in your home, there's always that one that if they don't get their way, it's miserable for everybody. And so the other ones kind of have to give in so that that one is happy. And they give in, but they're not, they're not happy about it. Sometimes you may give in to your spouse. And you may say, fine, whatever. You gave in, but that's not what this is talking about. Because it says you are to give preference to one another. How? In honor. I lay down my life for you. I am giving this up because I love you. Because I care about you. Because you are special to me. You don't see that very much in the culture we have today. It's all about our own rights and what we're going to do. One writer said... We must give each other priority in honor. More than half the trouble that arises in churches concerns rights and privileges and prestige. Someone has not been given his or her place. Someone has been neglected or unthanked. It's not just in keeping your vows but it's how you keep them. Can I say that again? It's not just in keeping your vows, it's how you keep them. Your marriage vows, the promises you make to your children, all of those kind of things in the dynamic of the family. We want our love to be genuine love, and the source of genuine love is the one who is love, the love of God flowing through us. Now, that doesn't mean you have to turn into a a namby-pamby puddle of goo and you can't ever take any stands or discipline or anything like that. Not, Not at all. Not at all. But it is the attitude that you have as you interact, as you spend time at the dinner table, as you are planning your vacation, as you are going out to eat, as you are at ball games, as you are interacting just in your living room. How does that happen? Is your love perceived as real or perceived as a hypocritical love? The Greek word there is ahupakritos, and it means a hypocritical type of love. Love that is in words, love that is in appearance. Everybody thinks you have a loving home, a happy home, and they'd be shocked as to what really went on in that home. And your kids know it, and that pushes them away from the Lord and from church. Secondly, here's one that I think is even bigger than that that I've noticed over the years is inconsistency. Inconsistent application of truth. I have had my fill of people taking bold stands for God and then compromising it within a month. I've had my fill of these people that stand up and tell everybody how much Jesus means to them. But then when you ask their children, well, I did that one time. I was counseling a teenager, and as we were talking, I knew this guy's dad. He was the guy that cried in every song. He's just so close to Jesus, and he would raise his hands. And when he would give a testimony, oh, I love my Lord, and all of that. Found out from the kid, that same guy is the one that when he got out into the car, if the kids weren't in there fast enough, he would cuss at them before he got out of the church parking lot. Now, what does that say to the kid? What does that say whenever you tell your children one week something is wrong and the next week out of convenience? Well, okay, just this once. 
And they get the idea that everything's up for negotiation. They get the idea that God doesn't mean what he says because you don't mean what you say and you represent God in your home. There has to be something about consistency. Now, it could be that you're too harsh and you need to back off. It could be that you are not disciplining, disciplining rightly and you are shepherding your children to disrespect, to rebellion, and you think you're just being nice and they're going to respond to that nicety and that doesn't happen either. The devil will take your children whichever way they want to go and he'll also play you the way you want to go. And the key is to be consistent. Notice in verse 11. Not lagging in diligence. You ever done that? I have. Fervent in spirit. The word fervent there means boiling. Boiling. And it's talking about always being hot for the Lord and on. Not being angry, but being uh, 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 on fire for the Lord, we would say. And it says it right here, the next phrase, serving the Lord. And how do we do that? Well, we rejoice in hope. We're patient in tribulation. We're continuing steadfastly in prayer. We're distributing to the needs of the saints. We are given to hospitality. Now, when you look at those kind of things, how often do we do that? Even the hospitality thing. Well, we mean it, but we never get around to it. Or we only do it when somebody dies or something like that. Every funeral I, I go to, whether it's a family member or whether I'm conducting the funeral, I hear people say this, we've got to stop getting together only at funerals. Your family ever say that? We need to do more of this, but we need to do it at a happier time. You know what I find out? The vast majority never do it. It's all talk, isn't it? We have the right idea, we express the right idea, but we never carry it out. Now, is that the way it is in your home? Because your kids notice. They notice when you threaten and don't carry out. And by the way, don't threaten something you're not going to carry out or you can't carry out because that doesn't really give them any. Your word matters in all of this. So, little Johnny, if you do that one more time, I'm throwing you out the window and you live on the second story. You probably shouldn't do that. And you probably shouldn't threaten that either because that gives them the idea that you don't always mean what you say. You're just talk. You're just talk. It's like the family on their way home from church <clears throat> and uh, the uh, 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 man, the father, he goes, that was a terrible sermon. And the wife goes, yeah, and man, that music was just so off-key. It was, it was horrible. And the little girl, she goes, yeah, my Sunday school teacher was just not prepared and wasn't ready to go. And the little boy goes, yeah, but you've got to admit, it wasn't bad for a quarter. And uh, that's kind of the way we give them the idea that everything that has to do with the Lord is devalued that it doesn't really matter, and that we're not really... And probably all those people went by and said, Good sermon, Reverend, and all that. Well, the kids hear that kind of stuff, and they know what's going on. And we think about how many times we uh, make a pronouncement, and we say something, this is the way it's going to be, and you're not going to do that in my house, and you do it, and all of those kind of things. This is what we are talking about here, and the application of these things where they're not just hot and cold, where there are actual convictions in the house. We are going to be in church and we're not going to violate Hebrews 10, 25 unless I don't want to go, unless I'm tired. Now, if the kids are tired, well, you don't get a pass on that, but I do. Really, none of you should, but that's the way that kind of thing goes. And um, I just ask you a question. What do your kids, when they come home from school, what do they come home to? What does your spouse come home to? What, what is there? How could you change 
the atmosphere in your home. And, uh, you know, when I read these kind of things, I, I think about, are we rejoicing or complaining? Or is, are they coming home to patience or pressure and stress? Are they coming home to just peace, which is that attitude of prayer that we're told to do here? Are they coming home to pandemonium? Pandemonium? Are we demonstrating servanthood in the way that we serve at the church? Your kids watch that. Are we demonstrating it to friends, to family, to neighbors, and that type of thing? You say, well, yeah, we try to do all that. Okay, let me give you a warning. Your kids also watch when you do that for other people, but you don't do it at home. For example, mom starts cleaning. And the first thing the kids ask are, who's coming over? Because you wouldn't dare let a guest see what your kids see every day. That's a problem. That tells them they don't really matter much to you. It's the kind of thing that when you uh, have somebody at the church who has a flat tire, you drop everything to go change that tire for them and the kids got a bike that the tire needs to be aired up in and you just don't have time. For any of that. What is that saying to the kid? What's that saying to the family? What's it saying when you will put time and effort and money into impressing other people, things that you tell your family, we don't have money for that, we can't afford that. What does it say and what do your kids notice when somebody says something rude to you at church and it does happen? And you respond with, oh, that's okay. It, it doesn't matter. But when your kid does that, you blow. What, what is it saying to them? And they start noticing that Christianity is only for certain times, certain places, certain people. And uh, what do they say with that? Not interested. Not interested. I don't want anything to do with something like that because they see it as hypocritical, of course. And so, you know, so many things like that that we do for strangers, we do for other people, we do for neighbors, we do for extended family and all of that, that we don't take the time to do for our own wife or husband or for our kids. I mean, this is the way Paul is telling us we are supposed to live. You know, we can be positive and complimentary to somebody's face and then stab them in the back as soon as they're gone. Your kids notice that type of thing. Hypocrisy. You know, we live in a very hypocritical world. You know, the NBA, they uh, pulled out their all-star game out of Charlotte, North Carolina. And do you remember what that was over? Charlotte had passed a law saying that men have to go to men's bathrooms and women to women's bathrooms. And the transgender community had a fit over all of that. So the NBA pulled out of Charlotte because they are not going to participate in a place that is so narrow-minded and bigoted. Ah, I wish that were the end of the story. But the uh, Bucks and the Heat will play in the NBA's first games in the United Arab Emirates in 22 and 23. You know, it's interesting that Charlotte, all they said was, hey, just use the bathroom that fits your biology. That doesn't really hurt anybody. You go to the Muslim Middle East and they throw homosexuals off of buildings. What's the deal? What's the deal? And the same thing where that bugs you. Now, I don't see how people get away with that. I understand. 
When the governor of California can go to that San Francisco restaurant and he can eat and socialize without a mask on and then also threaten and fine people who were uh, not wearing masks in California, that bothers me. When there are people that break laws, violate the Constitution, and then there's seemingly no justice in it, I don't know about you, that bothers me. Can I say something to you? That bothers your kids too. They don't know who the governor of California is, but they know who daddy is. They know who mama is. They know how you act around other people. They know how you present yourself around other people. And they know that that's not the way it is at home. They see it because it is inconsistent. And what we need to do is be consistent in everything um, that, you, that we do. And to make sure that we are consistently living right. And so the key phrase in that particular passage we read is serving the Lord. You're serving the Lord as a parent. You're serving the Lord when you cook meals. You're serving the Lord by mowing grass. You're serving the Lord by taking your kids to little league practice and ball games. You're serving the Lord in all of these different ways. You are a minister. You are a minister in everything that you do. In fact, I saw what one writer said that characterizes religious hypocrites... And in Matthew's gospel, where 16 of the occurrences in the Greek occur, we note these things. A hypocrite does not act spontaneously from the heart, but with, look at this, calculation to impress observers. You doing that? Does that motivate you? You've got a problem with hypocrisy. It also says a hypocrite thinks only of the external trappings of religion, ignoring the central heart issues of love for God and for others. Well, you live around somebody very long, you can pick up on that. You really love God? You're really doing this for God or just for what people will think of you, just so you won't be embarrassed? And then it says that a hypocrite uses spiritual talk to hide base motives. Somebody cussed around me. Sorry, pastor. Pardon my French. No, you got a heart problem. Romans 3 says the heart of a lost person is full of cursing and bitterness. If you are a person that can't control your language, you're revealing that you have a heart of bitterness. I feel sorry for you. I have compassion for you. I pray for you. But it's not just a bad habit or the way you talk. But we cover those kind of things up all the time. And we tell our children that my disobedience of law is different than your disobedience of me. My disobedience of God is different than your disobedience for me. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's a big problem, in fact. Thirdly, as we move on to verse 14, notice that it's immature, uh, immaturity and uh, being uh, self, we'll call it self-dominated, self-centered, which is what a child is. Uh, my youngest granddaughter is here this morning. You may have heard her earlier. And, uh, you know, I'll I just say this. I love Charlotte, but she's the most self-centered person I've ever met. <laughs> she, she really doesn't care much about me or anybody else. She smile occasionally if she feels like it. But if she doesn't, she doesn't even fake it. It kind of hurts my feelings sometimes. And sometimes when you hold her, she might be fine. Other times you hold her and she starts crying immediately. That face, you know, and everything. And they're like, and back to mama, you must go. And uh, that kind of thing. And she never, never gives just even one rip about how I might feel about that. You ever notice that? Babies are self-centered. They want to eat when they want to eat what they want to eat. 
And uh, they want everything to be right around them. They don't even stop. Have you ever heard a little baby in a crib say something like this? Let's say they're six weeks old. Mom! Dad! Of course, translation of that is, wah! Right? I'm hungry, but if you're tired, don't worry about it. Sleep another couple of hours. It'll be okay. I'll suffer through. You ever hear them say that? No. No. And you know, it's interesting what you put up with in an infant, you would not put up with in your two-year-old or your four-year-old or your ten-year-old. And yet there are so many people that never really grow up. Can I uh, give you some characteristics of a grown-up? Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. You're not going to do that unless you're mature. Bless and do not curse. You say, well, I just couldn't help it. It just came out. You're just showing your immaturity. Sorry. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Most of the time we're jealous of them and complain about them. And weep with those who weep. You know, weeping people kind of annoy me and they kind of unsettle me and I'd just rather stay away from them. I don't want to get involved in what's going on in their life. Well, a mature person does. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Mature people find a way to agree. Mature people find a way to come together on those kind of things if it's possible. It's not always possible, but most of the time it is. Then it says, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. You see, it's high school kids that only want to be around the popular kids, and they don't want to make friends with that kid that's not so popular. Well, we ought to grow out of that. It's high school kids that look and everything has to be a label and everything has to be cool and everything has to be in style. You know, by the time you were raising your family, you ought to be out of that. Those kind of things don't give you status. They don't give you anything you think they do. And uh, if you think they do, go back and look and see how miserable you were in high school. Amen? We ought to grow out of those kind of things. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Personal illustration, I was so much smarter when I was 18 than I am now. God thought I had all the answers. Didn't you? Don't look spiritual. The Lord knows your heart. We're all like that. Little eight-year-old kid, he knows how mom and daddy ought to run the household and what they ought to spend their money on, right? Ice cream, slushes at Sonic. Who needs electricity, right? Do not be wise in your own opinion. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Well, that happens so many times in houses. The people that go to church. Retaliation. Always something. We've got to get back at that other person. Babies aren't really aware of others. And little children feel no sense of responsibility to others. As a general rule, I know there are exceptions to things. And these are characteristics of immaturity, and this, these are the ways that so many church people act. Got to grow up, folks. We've got to grow up. Regardless of the justification, regardless of how well we can argue our point, regardless of how right we think we are, we've got to grow up. We're hurting people, and some of those people are in our own families. And then number four, we stumble our children by a lack of victory. Oh, victory in Jesus. Your kids wonder where that is. Your kids wonder why you're not growing, why you're not changing. 
Your kids wonder when you say amen at a sermon why you're not putting it into practice. They wonder and they see all of that kind of stuff. You expect your kids to grow because you tell them all the time, act like you are your age. You're acting like a toddler. Act your age. You're a grown-up. You're a big boy. You're a big girl. I expect more out of you than that. When I was your age, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Well, they also are not stupid. They see you. And they see where you make these claims and these boasts and these things you put upon them that you're not doing yourself. They see the lack of victory in your life. Notice what Paul goes on to say. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. God does not like people that stir up trouble. Even in Proverbs, he talks about that. Sowing seeds of discord among brethren is one of the sins that he abhors. We get all up in arms about homosexuality is an abomination. Yeah, so is sowing seed among, dis among uh, brothers. Seeds of discord, right? And so, uh, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And here you go. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I would take that to be the summary statement for that particular uh, portion of Scripture. That's what our kids see if we are overcoming or overcome by evil. What do they see? What do they see? they see you growing in the Lord? Do they see you more passionate about Jesus? Do they see you more committed to the Word of God? Do they see you as a better witness? Do they see you as a kinder person? Do they see mercy in your life? He has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly? That's even in the home. To love mercy? That's even in the home. And to walk humbly with your God. And I think that there are a lot of kids. Again, going back to the introduction. It's not 100%. But I think there are a lot of kids, more than we would like to admit, that say, yeah, we went to church every time the doors are open, but I just don't get it, and I don't see it. And what are they really saying? I didn't see it lived out. And maybe it was in a liberal, hypocritical church, but maybe it was in just a family that violated these very things that we're talking about. And I'll close with this. When our children are raised going to church, pressed into a moralistic lifestyle, pressured to behave superficially and they see their parents and other church members giving fake love, spiritual inconsistency, immaturity and selfishness, and a lack of victory and fruit, just excuses instead of repentance. What do you think their conclusion about church, the Bible, Jesus, and you is going to be. Just guess. You don't have to guess very long. You don't have to guess very hard because they'd do the same thing you would do if you were seeing all of that and being raised in that. And so the call here is for us to, number one, make sure we clearly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God sent His Son as the God-man to the earth to live a perfect, sinless life under the law of God. 
so that he could go to the cross and sacrificially give his life and more importantly bear the wrath of God in our place so that he suffered spiritually what we deserve in hell forever that he was raised from the dead and that he is Lord of all and when we acknowledge that he takes our sin away and gives us the righteousness of Christ and it's all by faith and not of works and he gives us a new nature and from that point on, we have a new master. We have a new boss. It's Jesus Christ. He's Lord of our life. And that ought to show up when we go to school. That ought to show up when we go to church. That ought to show up when we go to work. That ought to show up when we are dealing with our neighbors. That ought to show up in the home, in the way we discipline, in the way we conduct the affairs of our house. And so we've got to be gospel-centered on all of that. And then secondly, we have got to model and show them what Christianity is like. If you bring them to church to show them Christianity, then you're giving them the idea that there's just a certain group of, I don't know, people that are sort of like Amish maybe and live a weird lifestyle, but it's not for me. But when they see it in the home, I've told you several times that my prayer when my kids were little is please let me be in a place where my kids will grow up seeing that my convictions were not just the convictions of a preacher, but that real people lived them out. And God brought us here. Has it been a perfect thing? No, because you're like I am, imperfect. We don't always model those things, do we? But they did see enough in some of you, particularly some of you men, that lived and they could look and they could say, that guy lives and thinks like my mama and daddy do. That lady lives and thinks like my mama and daddy do. And together it reinforces all of that. May God grant us the grace to not be hypocritical. And if our kids are going to rebel, let them rebel over our Christian faith. But let's not push them. And let's not trip them. And let's not model for them what we are telling them they are supposed to get away from. Let us point them in the right direction. When Jack Hanna died and we had his funeral, there was a, a phrase that uh, I got a hold of that I've used a lot since then. Great men of God leave big holes when they're gone, but they leave clear footprints. And he was one of them. Some of you who are around back then can say amen to that. I want to be like that. I want you to be like that. I want to be missed whenever I die. That'd be nice. But more important than that, I would like to leave for those who are coming after me a clear set of footprints that lead to the cross for the glory of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are so weak. We are so frail. We are so inconsistent. Our love is sometimes just in word only and not in deed or truth. There are those times, Lord, when we're so inconsistent, we say amen to something that we violate before we get to our car. We had those times, Lord, when um, we start looking at the expectations. We expect our kids to act mature while we act like babies. And Father, we want to ask you that in each one of our lives and in our homes, sin would be overcome, the demons of hell would be defeated, all of our immaturity would change as we grow in Christ, so that we live a life of victory, so that our children know 
my daddy, my mama, my brother, my sister, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my Sunday school teacher, that person in the choir or orchestra, they are the real deal. Lord, we know we can only be the real deal by your grace. Forgive us, challenge us, and empower us, please. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you so much.